It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, October 8th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden warns of a nuclear Armageddon. There are many rungs on the escalation ladder that the Pentagon and and top U.S. officials explained to me are more likely before he uses a nuke. In an October surprise, shakes up an already razor-thin Senate map. If they don't get control of the Senate back or some of these candidates lose, he can say, well, you see, some of these people weren't exactly, you know, from central casting. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The world hasn't been this close to nuclear Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was the stark and terrifying assessment of President Biden this week, speaking at a Democratic fundraiser. The president was warning about threats coming from Russian President Vladimir Putin about the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine in defense of Russia. We've got a guy I know fairly well, President Biden said of Putin, telling donors Putin is not joking when he talks about potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is underperforming. The president conceded it's unclear what an off-ramp for Putin may be. All the while, another potential nuclear threat flexed its muscle this week. North Korea has been test-firing a barrage of missiles, including a mid-range missile that sailed over Japan, jolting residents to take cover. Fox News national security correspondent Jennifer Griffin has been speaking with military sources about both of these threats and reports on what the assessments say about nuclear escalation. Well, I think it's really important when you talk about nuclear weapons to distinguish between strategic nuclear weapons that could take out Washington, D.C., New York, uh, or Moscow. Uh, there is no sign, and the Pentagon, we ask them every day, if there's any sign of a change to command and control, any sort of change in, in footing to those nuclear weapons, they keep a very close eye on that. They have ways of monitoring if there's any movement on that front with regards to Russia. So no change to strategic nuclear weapons. Then we ask about tactical nukes. And Russia has about 2,000 tactical nukes. And there was some spurious reporting earlier this week that somehow sort of cropped up in in some uh, overseas publications suggesting that there was a train affiliated with a certain unit that is known to transport uh, or or be responsible for the tactical nuclear weapons. And so that, that launched a degree of speculation that Putin may be moving a tactical nuke to the Ukrainian border. But if you sort of do logically work your way through that, and certainly the Pentagon takes any talk and loose talk of nuclear weapons use very seriously. And and the Pentagon went back through and U.S. intelligence went back through and listened very carefully to the exact wording of what Putin said in his speech a week ago. And basically, Putin had a lot of caveats in there in which he suggested that if Russia was struck. Now, the question is, 
uh, th- then nuclear weapons could be uh, used. The question is, what does he define as Russia? He's mm-hmm. just declared four territories inside Ukraine, which are clearly Ukraine. There was a sham referendum in those four areas. Uh, does he count? Does that count if if a uh, if a long range or multiple launch rocket system uh, provided by the U.S. fires into one of those areas, which they most likely will, because the Ukrainians are pushing Russians out of those areas? What will happen if the Ukrainians hit Crimea, which the West and international community regards as Ukraine, but which Russia has declared uh, and annexed as part of Russia? Does that cause Putin to change his mind? Everybody is. T- taking Putin seriously in terms of the threat to use tactical nukes, but there's no evidence that he's moving in that direction. There are many rungs on the escalation ladder that the Pentagon and and top U.S. officials explained to me are more likely before he uses a nuke. Remember, if 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 he uses a nuke on his border with Ukraine or inside, just inside Ukraine, the radiation is going to flow back over his own people into Russia. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, He could still do a lot of damage. And what I think people are feeling right now is as the Russian military is collapsing, which it is, it's collapsing in the, not just the east, but the south, as well as the north around Kharkiv, um, it's really collapsing at a stunning rate. That makes Putin even more dangerous. You've seen some conventional missile strikes and drone strikes in the Kiev area for the first time in some months. And that has people's attention because there are other things that Putin could do that would be equally dastardly. But this loose talk of nuclear weapons, you heard from the Pentagon podium, uh, Brigadier General Pat Ryder said it's just utterly irresponsible. And, you know, you talk about the difference between tactical nukes and, and the sort of, you know, over the ocean nuclear weapons that, um, uh, you know, are, are sort of the, the fear of the Cold War. But a tactical nuclear weapon, I understand it's a smaller detonation, but it is frighteningly destructive still. Absolutely. I mean, it's larger than the, the bombs that struck Hiroshima. But again, that radiation, um, it, it has the potential to harm Russians. Now, Putin doesn't seem to really care about harming Russians. Um, you can see from the kind of the, the deployment and the mobilization that he's just conducting, he's willing to use them as cannon fodder. So you can't rule anything out because this is a very uncertain time. And, and I would say that all eyes right now are on Ukraine because uh, the situation as Ukraine continues to make incredible gains on the battlefield, Putin starts running out of options. And, and it is so it is it is extremely dangerous, but no sign as of right now the, of any movement on the nuclear front. There are nuclear fears always in North Korea. They have now that country rattled off a number of missile tests, one that went over um, Japan uh, in recent days. How worrisome is that to U.S. officials? Are they seeing uh, anything new as they sort of assess the capabilities of North Korea and its uh, weapons program? I mean, extremely brazen and certainly causing the Pentagon and the, the U.S. Indo-PACOM uh, to to have to adjust and have to react and have to respond, which um, is also very unnerving for the South Koreans and the Japanese. The intermediate range ballistic missile that flew over Japan was particularly brazen. Kim Jong-un has not done that in five years in terms of flying a ballistic missile over Japan. And he did so at a time when the 
admiral, the U.S. admiral in charge of U.S. Indo-PACOM, was visiting Japan and meeting with the defense leaders. Air raid sirens forced Japanese into their into their bunkers. Uh, very unnerving. Then to follow up 24 hours later, uh, just in the last 24 hours, he fired two short-range missiles. And then what's more worrisome than that and unpredictable is that for the first time in as long as anyone I have spoken to can remember, Kim Jong-un flew 12 uh, fighter jets towards the uh, and bombers toward the border with South Korea. That forced South Korea to respond and send 30 fighter jets mm. and bombers uh, to the border. So it's very, very tense in terms of things that can go wrong and miscalculations right. that can occur. The USS Ronald Reagan is in the East Sea, the Sea of Japan. Uh, what's interesting for the first time, remember, uh, President Trump ordered the exercises, military exercises with Korea um, halted when he was president. And there was a great deal of consternation here at the Pentagon. Uh, Jim Mattis was the defense secretary. And I remember when that happened, it was during a summit with Kim and the Pentagon tried to play it down, but behind the scenes, they were very concerned. And what you're seeing now is that they're returning to, to those military exercises with South Korea and now with Japan, trying to integrate those systems, because if you don't practice together, you can't respond quickly. And we saw that North mm -hmm. Korea's pushing the buttons again. They're very threatened by these exercises taking place. And then uh, the U.S. And, and Japan and South Korea, they they carried out um, airstrikes. They practiced some surface-to-surface -surface missiles, uh, strikes. But all of this is not good, but it is all part of Kim Jong-un's march to improve his ballistic missiles. He is likely to carry out a nuclear test sometime soon, according to mm -hmm. those who, who watch these situations. And it's just all part of his uh, wanting to have a delivery system for his nuclear weapons. Let's finish with this, because I think for a lot of folks, we forget that the U.S. is still deeply involved in what's happening in Syria as it relates to ISIS. A couple of strikes this week um, that, that got your attention. Well, not just this week. In the last 24 hours, two strikes, very significant strikes, uh, decapitating ISIS in uh, three top leaders were targeted uh, at midnight last night, uh, an unusual raid involving U.S. special operations forces into Syrian-controlled territory, a village uh, near Kamishli, where a uh, an ISIS leader who was in charge of weapons and smuggling ISIS fighters was killed by the special operations troops. Usually, it's a it's a mission to actually capture uh, those individuals, but but often the the if the individual tries to fight back, then then they're killed. That individual was killed, and then uh, we. We just learned just hours ago uh, at 6.23 p.m. local Syria time, the U.S. carried out an airstrike, uh, killing one of the top five ISIS leaders, Abu Allah, and his deputy, uh, deputy named Abu Muad al-Qahtani. Um, he was the ISIS official who was responsible for prisoner affairs. So these are three top ISIS leaders mm. killed in the last 24 hours by U.S. forces. Just quickly, because I think it sort of speaks to the U.S. involvement in that region. Are there still U.S. troops deployed inside Syria? 
or do they sort of Ab- do this absolutely. externally? No, no, there's still a few hundred. Um, wow. They don't like to talk about exact numbers, but mm-hmm. I can say that's under a thousand. And those forces are in some key locations and they're able to work closely with the SDF, the, the Kurdish troops, as well as the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, there's, uh, you know, as we've talked about in recent weeks, there's a huge displaced person camp um, named mm. Al-Hal, 60,000 people there, many of them the widows and wives and, and children of ISIS fighters. And they, uh, the U.S. Central Command is very concerned that that is a recruiting ground for ISIS. And so you've seen some raids into those camps, uh, but that camp has to be dealt with in some ways. Mm. Uh, it's a festering wound. And if U.S. forces were to pull out, God forbid, you would see what's happening in Afghanistan or what happened when the U.S. pulled out of Iraq, uh, those prisoners, those um, uh, displaced people, um, you would see a resurgence of ISIS very quickly. An important reminder of the men and women in in uniform still very much in harm's way. Uh, Appreciate your reporting on all of these issues. Uh, Be safe. Take care, Jen. Thanks, Jared. Surprise, it's October. I'm not sure about you, but the fall really snuck up on me. And here we are less than a month from the midterm elections, and it did not take long for the so-called October surprise to drop in a critical Senate race. This week, the Daily Beast reported Herschel Walker, the football star and Republican nominee for Senate in Georgia, paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion more than a decade ago. The revelation runs counter to Walker's strong pro-life stance. He has said he opposes abortion in all cases. Walker says the story is a flat-out lie. The publication says the woman is known to Walker and is the mother of one of his children. Again, Walker says the story is not true and has threatened legal action against the Daily Beast. Adding to all of it, Walker's adult son Christian, a conservative with a social media following, has weighed in, calling his father a liar. Now, Walker's past has been an issue in this race. He's talked about previous mental health issues. And throughout the campaign, the race between Walker and Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock has remained super close. And it is as important a Senate race as there is. Remember, the special election in Georgia in 2021 swung control of the chamber to Democrats. The NRSC, the election wing for Senate Republicans led by Florida Republican Rick Scott, is standing by Walker, accusing Democrats of cranking up the smear machine. So late in the campaign, with the stakes as high as they are, is this October surprise the type of event to swing a race? Fox News congressional correspondent Chet Pergram has experience covering big races. I asked him to offer some context on this and believe it or not what the musical Hamilton teaches us about current events at the Capitol. Mitch McConnell is walking a a tightrope right now because he wants these candidates to win. But it's clear from his perspective that some of these folks aren't necessarily top drawer. So McConnell, and he said this for months now, he's essentially giving himself an out. Whereas if they they don't get control of the Senate back or some of these candidates lose, he can say, well, you see, some of these people weren't exactly, you know, from central casting. So that's a defense that he has arranged. And guess what? If they if they win, 
then he has underplayed it, you know, un underplayed expectations. And look, they have control of the Senate and look at, at how things are going here without question. And, and there are some others who have some problems. But without question, Herschel Walker is probably the most damaged candidate on the Republican side of the aisle. And we see this in a lot of races uh, when you get into October, certainly closer to November, where you have, you know, explosive stories about candidates that come out to, you know, they do opposition research on these folks and hold it until the last minute when they think it will make the most impact. And that's certainly what's happened with Herschel Walker. Then again, it was just about this time of year, almost to the date six years ago, when we found out about a, a videotape involving former President Donald Trump mm -hmm. and everybody was running from the hills for the hills with the President Trump on the Republican side of the aisle. And then it turns out he won the presidency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, listen, it comes down to how voters respond ultimately to these types of stories. And in the NRSC, we should point out, has stood by uh, Herschel Walker. Walker has denied these allegations, denied these stories, I think has threatened to take legal action against the Daily Beast, the, the publication that first uh, published these uh, these reports. And that's not surprising, right? I mean, 30 whatever days out from the election, um, you got to stand by your candidate, regardless of party, sort of regardless of, of what emerges, right? Uh, not, not always. And I mean, that was what was so unique in 2016, where as soon as the the uh, Access Hollywood tape came out, right. you know, you had a Republicans abandoning Donald Trump and then he wins the presidency and people kind of went with him grudgingly. And now, look, there's an entire wing of the Republican Party and, and the Republican movement that is aligned with Donald Trump and kind of slough all that off about Access Hollywood. And I mean, that's, you know, considering the other things that have gone on the past six years, that's the least of our worries. For the Democrats, the, the, the playing field still remains the same, and they are playing defense in more places than they are playing offense, and they are increasingly playing defense on a couple of fronts here, notably this OPEC plus decision, uh, OPEC uh, announcing it will uh, decrease oil production by about two million barrels a day. That has to be just the worst timing if you're a Democratic strategist and, and you see gas prices now starting to creep back up. And people call into question, well, what good was this uh, meeting that the president had with the Saudi leaders not that long ago? Uh, did that get him anywhere, especially when uh, there are some people, especially on the left and on the right to a degree, who thought they should have held Saudi Arabia's feet to the fire, more so on, on human rights after the killing of the Washington Post columnist, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, thought, you know, you're playing footsie with the Saudis. That just is just a bad look to start with. Uh, you know, and that is going to be key in the election, though, not so much uh, the relationship with Saudi Arabia. But if prices start to go back up, uh, people are going to have questions about heating oil going into the wintertime. Uh, energy issues are, are a problem all over the world. Look at what's going on in Europe and the United Kingdom right now. This is the problem that Liz Truss, the new British prime minister, has uh, energy issues um, and, and pocketbook issues and crime are going to be central to the election. Uh, abortion is important, but it seems like, uh, you know, crime and pocketbook, bread and butter, ta kitchen table issues, those will be a number one. A and it's very interesting. You know, we talked about Herschel Walker a, a moment ago. People said, you know, what do local newscasts lead with every night? While, say, the Herschel Walker uh, abortion questions are, are relevant and, and, and scandalous, frankly, uh, people see that crime and that dominates the newscast, just not in Atlanta, but in Milwaukee and mm -hmm. in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh and in Harrisburg. All of these places that have competitive Senate races going on. And maybe that would be an advantage to Republicans.
What are you hearing about as it relates to sort of this Senate math, right? I mean, we've talked about the states. It's going to come down to a handful. Um, are Republicans more bullish than they were, say, a month ago or Democrats more bullish than they were, say, a month ago? Republicans are a little more bullish. Uh, you definitely see uh, Madaz uh, performing better in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a, a really bad August with the uh, going to Wegner's uh, to shop and buying yes. crudite and talking about tequila. You, you know, the Fetterman campaign didn't really need to do much there. Um, you know, people really wonder about the polling again. Yeah. Someone said something to me a few weeks ago. They said, you know, polling is pretty good, but in swing states and battleground states, it's going to be a problem. And so you just can't figure things out there. Are they, again, undercounting Republicans? Uh, are there some surprises? You know, it would not be a gigantic surprise if Tim Ryan, the Democratic congressman from Northeast Ohio, were to beat J.D. Vance in Ohio. I mean, Vance would certainly be favored there. He's been accused of running a lackluster campaign. But maybe in this environment, you know, if you're more associated with, uh, uh, you know, President Trump and, and that wing of the party, that tends to work in a place like Ohio. Again, think about the, the TV newscasts in Cleveland and Dayton and Columbus and Cincinnati every night. OK, crime leading the story there. OK, people think, all right, that translates into elections. Uh, that could be a, a, a problem. The other thing to look for, and we've not really talked about this, is ticket splitting. Let's say, yes. you know, Herschel Walker is on the ropes in Georgia. Well, maybe Brian Kemp wins the governorship and you have, uh, you know, Raphael Warnock, the Democratic senator, yeah. keeping the Senate seat. Well, you could that's have what the I was going to ask about, in Pennsylvania, right? Ohio. Yes. Because you look at Georgia, a, a state that was decided by several thousand votes um, yep. in 2020 and, and then in 2021. Right. That's not a lot of Republicans that would have to vote, say, for uh, Brian Kemp and then leave the Senate ballot blank. Right. And this is where this is so hard to calculate, because you have ticket splitting in, say, Nevada, um, Mm -hmm. where Catherine Cortez Masto has a competitive race. What about New Hampshire? uh, Maggie Hassan, the Democratic senator there, and uh, and Chris Nunu, the Democratic governor, uh, or excuse me, the Republican governor. You know, you, Mm -hmm. you certainly see that there. This might work. To the Democrats' advantage in in a state like North Carolina, Ted Budd, the Republican congressman from North Carolina, who is the Senate GOP nominee there, is not exactly setting the place on fire. And the Democratic nominee, Sherry Beasley, you know, they say, okay, maybe we could flip a seat there. So, you know, the problem and, and when I've talked to political scientists the past few weeks and I said this on Fox News Sunday last week, Jared, is that they uh, seem to be kind of bewildered understanding who is going to show up. Uh, Maybe it's Mm. natural to think that because, you know, we're in a post 1-6 world. We're in a pandemic world still. Okay, we can discuss that another time. Uh, And so we don't know what this electorate looks like. I saw something just the other day looking at suburban Republicans who don't like the crime issue and don't like the border issues and are very concerned about inflation and pocketbook issues, they could show up, but rural Republicans might not show up. I mean, that was kind of the key to President Trump. And so let's say the Republicans win in some of these suburban seats. Does that mean suddenly we have some surprise, frankly, in some House seats where, you know, some Democrat snakes through and a Republican, uh, you know, very conservative area does not. And don't forget, in Florida, We've had a major hurricane there just on the redistricting. They are slated to pick up about four to five seats on the Republican side of the aisle. Mm -hmm. And you could see a situation where people, they don't know where to vote. 
The polling mm. place doesn't exist. The mail never came through with my ballot. Um, they, the, the last least concern they have is showing up to vote when they're trying to get their medicine and the shelter and diapers and everything else. So, you know, you could have some surprises electorally in Florida, too. That's why the ground game is so important for for all of these campaigns. Those get out the vote efforts that happen the week, the day of are are so important um, to your point. Let's finish with this, because um, I have found that the best way to get clicks um, in in this uh, world we live in, Chad, is to talk anything Hamilton related. Um, And you uh, you've done some reporting on on the former Treasury secretary and his uh, role of prominence in the U.S. Capitol. That's right. That's right. Well, Everybody knows that it was Aaron Burr who did in Alexander Hamilton in a duel, mm-hmm. a famous duel. You know, and this, of course, yep. well, we've seen the musical, the book <laughs> yes. by Ron Chernow. You know, his, his star has really kind it's of at the risen. Kennedy Center right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In fact, you know, my home of Cincinnati is playing there. You know, I mean, this is this is really a big deal. Or you know, what's going on right now with with Hamilton? Uh, but very few people know that it was Harry Truman who has also now done in Alexander Hamilton. Mm. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, in the Capitol Rotunda, that is where Alexander Hamilton's statue stood. And Mm -hmm. mostly in the Capitol Rotunda, you have presidents there. Well, Harry Truman is a president. Every state gets two statues. So a total Mm -hmm. of 100 in the collection. And they pretty much, with a couple of exceptions, they reserve Statuary Hall for presidents. Well, there was Hamilton standing there, and this is long before the musical and the book, with Jefferson and Washington and Reagan and Gerald Ford. Uh, you get the idea here, but he wasn't a president. So, you know, he, his stock has gone up in recent years, but Missouri voted to introduce Truman, you know, the 33rd president is their statue. So they took out their their other Missouri statue, who was a, a senator who served in the early 19th century from Missouri, whose history has kind of passed by. And so nobody really knows about him. He was not in, in the Capitol Rotunda, but they had to take somebody out. Well, the two statues in there besides Hamilton, who aren't presidents, is Martin Luther King and then the Women's Suffrage Monument, to, you know, to voting history. Mm-hmm. And so they they're not going to take those two out. So who was the odd man out? Alexander Hamilton. So they put Truman in and he is now down in what we call the Hall of Columns on the Mm -hmm. first floor of the Capitol. Now, Jared, this is not exactly the room where it happens. Trust me. (laughs) Down there, you've got he's he's next to uh, a racist former senator from Nevada, Pat McCarran, who I think his statue is probably on the way out. Uh, Also, uh, he's next to a statue from a guy from Vermont who was a a prominent member of the Whig Party, which doesn't even exist anymore. And a a statue from Florida, uh, a guy from Florida who invented the ice machine. So, uh, you know, this is one way to give Alexander Hamilton the cold shoulder. I'd watch a musical about the making of the ice machine. I think that'd be good. But, you know, you said <laughs> this is all about getting clicks, right? Well, in the case of moving the Hamilton statue, this might have been click boom, if you know the lyric of the musical. Uh, yes. Well, we'll see if uh, tourists make their way down a flight of stairs to go see the Hamilton statue. Chad, uh, I love that you uh, are on top of all of these things and uh, we'll continue to have these conversations, run the Senate math, run the House math and keep track of uh, who's prominently displayed and, and not prominently displayed uh, in the Capitol. I would not exactly bet on Alexander Hamilton staying in that position, Jared, because as he says in the musical, he's not going to throw away his shot. No, he'll be back. He'll be back. <laughs> all right, That's thanks, what Chad. the British king said. Remember that in the musical? <laughs> That's right. He'll be, he'll back. be back. That's so, right. <laughs> 
we'll wait. Um, we'll see what the new British king has to say about that. <laughs> we'll yeah, indeed. You. We should ask. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Chad. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Oregon isn't usually in the swing state column, but the governor's race there is too close to call with Republicans optimistic about a big upset. Ryan Schmelz talks to a reporter on the ground in Portland. And Jessica Rosenthal takes a look at shifting political demographics and a realignment of voting blocks heading into the midterms and 2024. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.